Hi, this is From Ideology to Unity, Logos Legacy. Uh, today I'm talking to Diamond Net or Emerald, and um, her podcast, her YouTube channel is about spiritual understanding, psychology, and expansion of consciousness, and probably much more. So this is the second time I'm interviewing her, and I, I've really been looking forward to this. So yeah, it should be good. Awesome. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. So, since last time we talked, what have been the main changes in your perspective? Hmm. The main changes in my perspective? Well, let's see, hard to, to map it out over that period of time. But what I would say is that recently I've done a plant medicine ceremony where I had a lot of insights come up and a lot of interesting things. And I suppose one insight that came up during that time, um, which was just really a small part of the overall journey uh, with the medicine, was that to speak from unconditional love and to speak from truth was the same thing. And that's something that I never really realized or articulated before. So that's sort of a new insight that's um, arisen for me. And so what I, what I took that to mean is that basically, I can kind of talk about an expanded range of topics as long as I can remain firmly in unconditional love. Because I guess with, uh, let's say, polarizations, you know, like we have like a big schism in terms of like ideologies, you know, sort of happening in the world. And I'm always at a bit of a loss for how to really approach it because at once, you know, I've, I myself have viewpoints within that, but then it's like, I know that from the standpoint that I speak of, if I polarize into that viewpoint, it's not necessarily so helpful. And so it's like really wanting to get at the heart of why that overall thing is happening, why the overall pattern is happening. And the insight that arose in relation to that is that in order for me to effectively be able to speak on these things, that it's very important for me to maintain the practice of unconditional love and to understand that all perspectives come from somewhere understandable, you know, so it, for example, let's go to something that's not, not politically polarizing, but something that just everybody would kind of agree as a negative thing. So like, let's say, let's say there's somebody who's like a serial killer, right? So there's a reasons, there are certain reasons why that person has come to be that way. Maybe physiological reasons come into it, you know, and also different, maybe reasons of conditioning and other things. There's you know, and so ultimately we can look at and say that, okay, this person is doing harmful things and we can set boundaries with that. And we can kind of decide on this like sort of more symptom-based level, how we're going to deal with that symptom. But we can look at underneath that and we don't have to be unloving to that person because we can recognize that if I were born, let's say in that perspective, perhaps I could end up going down that route too. If I had the same life circumstances, the same physiology, the same everything else, fundamentally human beings are in this, uh, let's say what I would say is a state of fragility where we can end up in a space where we, let's say maybe if we were living a different lifetime, we might judge as wrong or, or bad. And so ultimately that the main difference I would say, or the main insight that's crystallized is that in order to really understand what's happening at a deeper level, you know, coming at it from the space of whatever is, is what should be and acceptance and to understand fundamentally where certain perspectives and viewpoints and behaviors and, and things like that are coming from at the, at the deepest level. So 
in your plant ceremony, did you see from someone else's perspective or someone else's life, like from first person, like feeling the experiences and everything? I don't know why, I just got this idea, maybe. It wasn't quite like that. What it was is like, it's kind of a little bit hard to describe actually. What I would say is it's kind of like tapping into a higher version of myself, like a, a version of myself that is unconditionally loving. So, and it kind of appeared to me as this kind of androgynous vision. So if you can imagine this kind of human-like, alien-like being, like this is what I saw in my mind's eye. It wasn't like an actual visual hallucination, but I saw this in my mind's eye, a sort of behind the eyes hallucination. And it was clear that it had something to do with my own spirit and it was kind of like in this space of unconditional love, it just naturally was in that state. And the way that it would look at things is it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it, by its very nature, it wouldn't polarize. It would fundamentally see the holistic thing of what's going on. And to recognize that there's no such thing as a person being in an invalid state of mind, you know, no matter how, again, like, again, if we take the serial killer, no matter how radical it gets, there's always a reason that brought them to where they were. And so at once we don't have to, let's say, if there's some kind of harmful behavior, we don't have to like accept that as an expression. We can go, okay, we don't want serial killing, but we can also go like, okay, what has led this person to, to come into that perspective or what's led that person there? And then if we take something more extreme like that and we come into like say things where people just have genuine disagreements of, there's always some reason why someone's come to the perspective that they're in. Even if let's say on the more polarized political level, one person might say, ooh, I don't think this is a good idea or oh, I don't think that's a good idea. So if we take it into that more mild spectrum. So it was kind of like this this being was like always in this state of unconditional love and always speaking truth. And it didn't have, I guess it was the part of me that didn't have as much skin in the game. So, you know, when you're human, when you're in this like state, it's kind of like when somebody else has a viewpoint that let's say maybe impacts you negatively, or it's like, you know, maybe even a person could have like some kind of negative viewpoints toward people who like that, you know, would be like you or something like that. Mm. Ultimately, it can be very difficult to see that person through the lens of unconditional love and acceptance because you have skin in the game. There's like, you know, there's going to be a natural polarization there. But when I was in this state, it's kind of like, regardless of like, let's say if we take somebody who's like, you know, very like, let's say like an incel or somebody, somebody who's very misogynistic or something like that. In my typical human state, there might be something very triggering about that and very uncomfortable about hearing people's viewpoints who are like in that group, because some of it can be just outright very antagonistic to women. And so there would be in my, let's say in my default human state, you know, it's kind of like, oh, this person's viewpoints are going to harm me. This person's viewpoints are going to do this or do that. Um, whereas in that state, it was like being able to take my own perspective out of it and to recognize that, oh, this behavior is coming from this place. You know, so while I can recognize that perhaps it wouldn't be so unconditionally loving to allow a person with those viewpoints to sort of... Uh, impact people that they would be targeting out 
it's still coming from this fundamental place of like, let's say feelings of shame or feelings of unworthiness and kind of scapegoating and, and taking that, uh, that sort of ire and that sort of pain out on another person. And so at once I can recognize the behavior is maybe not so conducive to health and harmony within a society, but I can also recognize that, oh, it's coming from some other place. It's not coming from a place of inherent badness or wickedness or evilness. It's coming from this vulnerability, you know, a really deep, maybe child aspect of themselves that's like sort of lashing out. And so being in that state that that being that showed up in my mind's eye, it's like it always saw past the symptom and could always see the root. And at the root, there's this fundamentally loving nature to humanity. And that's something that came up in a previous plant medicine ceremony too. So it's sort of like all of these intermediate layers of like, let's say antagonistic behavior or scapegoating or you know this kind of thing is all coming from a kind of pain, a kind of woundedness. And underneath that, there's a deep desire for connection and to love and to be loved and the desire for kinship between all human beings. And so it was like the ability to stay in this almost transcendent perspective and to see the love that was underneath all of the, all of the, let's say all of the ire and all of the, the conflict and all of the, let's say, things like scapegoating and hatred and, and that sort of thing. Well said. Um, so... The only issue, if I could say that, um, with what you're saying is that it's, uh, these are kind of more very extreme cases. Mm -hmm. Like I see why you're doing that and mm -hmm. it's a fair point, but what's the energy behind more common dogmatic or doctrinal mm -hmm. or ideological thinking? For example, I don't know, suppose someone just supports one of the main political parties in a country, let's say the Democrats or the Labour Party, or it could be, you know, any of those sort of things. What's going on beneath the surface? Gotcha. So it would depend like on like which specific ideology that a person is buying into, but it's usually it's a confluence of different, like, let's say factors, like what was the situation the person grew up in? You know, it could even have to do with, you know, just natural disposition as to why someone might gravitate um, into a particular thing. Also, there could just be that, you know, those are the viewpoints that their parents had. So they came across at first and they've come to believe that way. So there's a variety of different, uh, different reasons why a person kind of ends up in the paradigm that they're in. Um, and it's it, like, in a sense, we can look at like these extremes, you know, so like where it's like, let's say somebody being directly antagonistic or, you know, even somebody like, let's say, we go way off in, you know, way off in the, you know, far, far extreme, like in a serial killer, you know, ultimately it's the patterns that shape them are the same kind of patterns that shape every human being. It's just that it happens to shape them in this really extreme way. Whereas people who are, let's say, more in the, more in the average zone are less likely to go off into these like polarized kind of things. And so ultimately, 
we can kind of look at, let's say, let's say the supporting of some mainstream political parties is coming from fundamentally the same forces, the sort of the nature and the nurture that leads a person into a certain type of viewpoint. And of course, a person's traumas can also have a lot to do with why they, they believe the way that they believe. And, you know, and I would say that generally speaking, like, you know, there are different paradigms that can co coalesce for a variety of different reasons, really. Right, so I guess that means it. there's a trauma and energy from childhood and perhaps different kinds of experiences and different kinds of responses or coping mechanisms lead to maybe a different kind of inclination mm -hmm. politically, for example. Um, could you elaborate on that, please? Mm -hmm. Sure, absolutely. So one thing that I've seen, um, for example, like with a few of my clients, is that they've had a lot of trauma around like authority figures. And so they would maybe have a tendency to, let's say, really kind of push up against any kind of like regulation. So like, for example, like I had a handful of clients who are really, really against wearing masks and it's not so much for the thing itself, but it's just kind of reminiscent of the things from childhood. So like there's like a direct connection there or like, let's say, I had one one client of mine who's actually a, a relatively popular political pundit, and he was talking to me about how he had grown up, you know, like going to Catholic school and everything. And he was mentioning about how he used to really, really like, you know, firmly like believe in like all of the different uh, things going on, and, you know, especially like the, the hierarchy of the different people, like the bishop and like other members of the church. And there was one instance that he had mentioned where they had kind of like swapped out the rules of something. And this created a situation where he was like, wait a second, like this is made up. You know, and so from there, he's become quite, um, let's say, even in his like, you know, political punditry, very, very, um, uh, let's say, very anti-authority, uh, very anti-authority, basically. So like, that's like one of the main ways that I could see, let's say, a trauma or let's say some kind of childhood situation sort of shaping a person toward a particular thing. And so, but it could also lead into the opposite where a person might experience things that make them a hyperconformist as well. So basically it kind of just depends um, in that sense. But of course, you know, there can, you can basically have conformists in either, you know, either of the two main poles and you can have people who are fairly rebellious in the two main poles as well. It just kind of takes a different form usually. So I wouldn't say specifically that that by itself would lead to one side or the other. It's more like a general orientation to whichever side. So kind of a more rebellious versus a more like, let's say conforming nature in either, either of those uh, parts of the spectrum. Right, so it seems that that's one psychological polarity and mm -hmm. politics might mm -hmm. result from that, but there's other maybe psychological or energetic polarities as well and these interplay what other ones might there be hmm, i think yeah so let's see what would be an example so let's say if there's a tendency to want to maintain stability right so let's say that a person grew up in a situation where things were always in a state of constant upheaval 
you know, where they never really had a real like set kind of uh, situation. And so maybe the ways that they coped with that was by trying to make sure that everything is planned out and that everything is going to maintain a kind of, you know, kind of status quo. And so big changes would tend to make that that person feel very uncomfortable because of the trauma they've experienced. That person might end up like, let's say, leaning toward a more like conservative, conservative in the sense of maintaining the current status quo of things, as opposed to, let's say, being more progressive and kind of pushing for, let's say, more changes and things like that, simply because we can take, let's say, the childhood situation that we were dealing with and we can take that and we can project it onto either other people or we can also project it onto big things like sociopolitical dynamics as well. So that would be like one example. Let me think about what would be a good example for why someone might lean, let's say, more toward, um, let's say, a progressive polarity. So it could be something like maybe dealing with certain problems, like let's say with the, the power structure of the family dynamic, you know, or dealing with some kind of situation where let's say there's a, a real unfair dynamic in, in the household, you know, so again, it's sort of like an authority figure trauma, you know, and maybe that person might have a tendency to hyper question any kind of social structure, any type of authority structure and try to push against it in that way. So like that would be an example on the other side of the polarity. So interestingly, someone like that might end up, like, say, a libertarian or something as well. Possibly, yes, absolutely. Hmm. But of course, there is a difference between mm -hmm. a libertarian perspective in that sense. I mean, these are just labels mm -hmm. and a progressive one. I don't get too stuck in the politics, but... Mm -hmm. um, I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> what do you think about... of the, so you're saying? Yeah, so I was thinking about, okay, so if we, we take, let's say libertarian right versus libertarian left, you know, so let's say that if we could say that there might be generally a pattern of trying to like push up against like, let's say power structures to be kind of anti-authoritarian, right? So if we think about, let's say political compass wise, we have authoritarian kind of toward the top of the political compass and then libertarian down toward the bottom. And then we have left and right. And so you can have left libertarian, you can have right libertarian. And so right libertarian tends to have to do with like basically, you know, a general mistrust of authority, but then also like kind of let the free markets deal with things, you know. And so it's a big, uh, let's say, very much like if you start your own business, like less regulation, like this kind of thing. And then we have over on the other side, sort of more left libertarian, where it's also kind of anti-authoritarian, but tends to be more focused toward like, okay, you know, collectively. So right libertarian tends to be very individualistic in its paradigm, whereas like the left libertarian tends to be more collective and be like, how is this group being treated versus that group? And, you know, maybe pushing against power structures in, in that way. What scares each of them differently? Gotcha. So what would scare, let's say, somebody who's libertarian, being somebody who had in college some libertarian leanings, it would be things like basically being, one of the things was being focused too much toward the collective because it's sort of like when you're in that more libertarian paradigm, at least for me personally, it was all about let's, oh, I'm as an individual going to try and work really hard and like earn, you know, earn my success, right? So, so it's sort of like, oh, I'm going to work really hard and, 
you know, it's like my, my victories are going to be hard won, and I'm going to experience the success by the sweat of my own brow. And there was a lot like within that where, let's say, if somebody were to bring up something from the other side of the polarity and go like, oh, well, hang on a second, not everybody starts at the same at the same starting point. So ultimately, if I concede that not everyone starts at the same starting point, then it's sort of like, oh, that's going to make my victory less sweet. So I might become kind of in opposition to that if I want to get the sense that the things that I'm working for are, are really my own victory, right? So it's sort of like that could be something of a fear. Now, the anti-authoritarian thing in general is it's no. different. Mm -hmm. I would raise another fear might be that if you have something or if you achieve something a reward of that that it might be taken away from you under mm -hmm. and, uh, and it might make you feel like you're afraid of like you know like an authority figure mm -hmm. like that taking away from you subconsciously like authority figure doing it and it reminds you of that mm -hmm. because maybe that same fear of authority will be expressed maybe as a fear of say something like patriarchy or something and on the left but the and it may be a collective approach might be seen as a solution uh to deal with those who would be viewed as troublesome individuals mm -hmm. rather than a troublesome collective uh, maybe does that make any sense do you mean like, so, okay, so if somebody's in like, let's say the right libertarian perspective and they're looking at the dynamic and they're afraid that, let's say, the things that they worked hard for are going to be taken away from them in, in by some kind of authority figure, like if not like, let's say, actually physically taken away, but more almost like psychologically taken away, like nullified in some kind of way. And so it would maybe be, if I'm understanding correctly, like a person in this paradigm would maybe look at somebody in the left um, libertarian sort of paradigm. It's sort of like looking at them and saying, oh, maybe it's not a problem with the collective. It's more of a, a problem with problem individuals. So it's sort of like almost like a, maybe glosses over some issues in order to maintain the paradigm. Is that kind of how you mean? Um, I was... Um... I was trying to juggle something in my head at the same time. So I'm not sure. So basically, perhaps um, in both cases, there might be an, a fear of authority. Mm -hmm. uh, on a right libertarian side, for example, it might be one fear might be the fear of like memories or something are being criticized by, or the energy when you're there being criticized or told off by, let's say, an authoritarian parent in some mm -hmm. sense. And being criticized for something you say, let's say you make a joke and it's a bit uh, edgy, or you, um, you just state an opinion and it's... Um, criticized maybe harshly maybe not um it might seem like like there's something wrong with you for having said it or something 
or you know if there's a, a, the idea of the government like or a law about something on the left like um higher taxes or uh, something to deal with um a an inequality that some think there's there but it doesn't matter if it's there or not it anyway that would be seen as a threat and remind them of their their childhood but on the other side of course um from the left-wing perspective uh, from a progressive perspective perhaps they would feel that they feel threatened by um well bigotry and that hierarchy and that then things will be said that will offend them or on behalf of others that they care about or they, they think uh, you know need to be taken care of and cared for and protected and also for themselves if they feel they're different in some way and also for the sort of society that they would want the idea of a better society would be seen as changed from how it is now to something in the future mm -hmm. um actually this is actually something they might share with the libertarian actually but mm -hmm. i don't want to get too much of a tangent but they would see problem individuals who don't follow a sort of a fair and caring paradigm of don't say this don't say that don't do this don't do that because that might hurt someone or that may cause and don't these or certain thoughts and certain ideas will cause you to become bigoted and so you don't want to these are problematic things and so that we need to but some people if they're in ego will want to be controlling about that just as some people in or let's be conservatives, not really be controlling about maintaining stability, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I guess there's different perceived problems or angles and different perceived solutions. Mm -hmm. Individual and collective. If individual's bad and collective is good, then that shapes how you see it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I think like a lot of the blind spots tend to come from like not being able to toggle back and forth between individual and collective like mm. so so for example like if we go into a forest and we focus on one tree like there's a there's something about that perspective that's going to give us a lot of information we also focus on the one tree as a as part of a collection of other trees also gives us more information about the situation what I notice about particularly the perspectives of libertarian right versus libertarian left is it tends to be like the libertarian right tends to be like the individual to the exclusion of the collective, whereas libertarian left tends to be more the collective to the exclusion of the individual. And so there's a difficulty with like toggling back and forth. Now, I think like just as somebody who has more left leaning views personally, like I know, like as being somebody who isn't a libertarian left, it's not like what you had mentioned about like it's like not wanting to become bigoted or not wanting other people to be bigoted that's like an element and that's more like almost uh, like not not necessarily like 
it's something that's maybe underneath the surface of consciousness, that more individual perspective. It's more focused toward like the collective, like, oh, if these patterns are going on, it's going to like lead into some cascading sort of negative effect. So yeah. it's sort of, it would be less like, oh, is this person individually bigoted, which again can come in as sort of like an undercurrent there, you know, the concern, am I bigoted or is the other person bigoted? It's more like, oh, if we have these certain patterns, is it going to create a tidal wave of effects that's going to impact a large swath of the population negatively? Ha! Huh. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that I had a fear before I'd kind of let go to some extent and drop the sword that after the mentality. I mean, I've still got some residual stuff left over, but I know I've got bias. But like, um, I felt like there was this cascading tendency for more for people to, I, I was fearing that I'd be more and more on tiptoes and more uh, that more and more like I wouldn't that I don't know like I, I was afraid of things like meat eaters being a minority who are ashamed and like it was a, almost a caricature of a fearful idea of like how things could become where there's loads of shaming all the time and you're constantly like having to like say avoid like because i i wasn't comfortable i was scared of so-called well, cancer culture right and for me that was and I, I, I i'm not going to speak for everyone but i think that there's a people get afraid of it but they're reacting to it and so they're like they're only seeing it as a threat and so not really understanding where people are coming from and there's a sort of get this either way right i don't know where i was going with this there was a reason where was i going with this <laughs> yeah i guess like okay so so basically with that like i had mentioned that like let's say on let's say the oh. left side of the spectrum it, mm -hmm. uh, basically it's a similar thing of fearing cascading consequences for people because it's like what sort of society would that be to live in? People would suffer under that. And the idea that not just uh, like right-wing people or whatever that even means, right? <laughs> but that everyone, and the, you, you, might, you might say, oh, it's like not taking responsibility because it's like blaming all of this. Uh, but that and the other. But uh, I do think though, the more... You might tell me if you've had experiences as well that the more you've come to a more neutral, non dualistic perspective, the more you can see both sides and you can see things you're actually looking, it's like you're looking down on the political compass from a position where the light shines out further. And so you're not really on one point. Mm -hmm. You're actually, it's like you're transcending the whole. Thing. Yeah, so it's kind of like, okay, so it's sort of like you have the political thing going up here, right? So, and this is like where basically you have all the symptoms showing up from like the deeper levels of things. And ultimately, when I look at the, the politics of things, it has to be engaged with, right? And, you know, I don't necessarily even think it's like good to put, put yourself smack in the middle. 
people have different viewpoints for different reasons and different viewpoints lead to different outcomes. So like on this political level, I think there's always going to be, you know, some disagreements and there's always going to be some degree of polarization between perspectives and that sort of thing. But what I'm trying to get at, and I've seen a lot of people try to do it on the political level. I don't think it works very well on the political level itself, where basically there's an attempt to go toward the center and say like, okay, mm -hmm. half this way and half that way. But it doesn't really work on the level of politics itself. But if you can go underneath and you can see the roots of where people's politics are coming from, which, I mean, some things are just deeply held values. Other things are coming from things like traumas, other underlying dynamics that could actually be um, sort of resolved so that it leads to better outcomes. Because the way I see it is that ultimately the paradigms that are here right now, I look at those as sort of temporary kind of movement points in a, in a broader in a broader scale of human development. So it's like right now, this is what, what we would consider, let's say the two poles of things, but it's sort of like new paradigms from here can even arise. And so the way that I see it is we have to like really look at those deeper levels, like what's actually producing these paradigms. If we wanna actually sort of integrate those paradigms and then eventually transcend and to evolve into something that's sort of like you know, an exalted form of both of those things and then brought into even a higher perspective than perhaps humanity is capable of currently getting into the perspective of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, I just mental image come to mind of, um, you know, that Kundalini serpent spiraling up and there's two sides, two mm -hmm. things that spiral yeah. around. And at each level, like on, um, what is it? Spiral dynamics, for example. And there's other models as well, like the Hawkins scale is linked to this. Mm -hmm. And well, as you get to different levels, you get to different kinds of emotional frequencies and different kinds of ways of approaching things. But there's always a duality, even as it spirals up. And you need to kind of constantly integrate things together to get to another level. Exactly. And then at a certain point, you kind of end the duality altogether. But of course, it's all this ancestral energy is passed down through generations, ancestral wounds, right? Exactly. And of course, as there's an accelerating ascension, a lot's coming up. There's all these rays coming from the sun, giving us these up downloads or, you know, upgrades, whatever. But so that's the, this chaotic transition. And, what do you have to share about that whole thing? Sure, absolutely. Like, so basically, like, I could see it, like, in, like, have you ever watched the movie The Dark Crystal? No, not very long. Yeah, so I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily spoil it, but I guess it's, I mean, like, yeah, so I don't necessarily want to spoil it, but one of the main things is it's about two polarities coming together. Um, two polarities that, like, are very, very different. Um, so, so let me not use that example because I don't want to spoil things in the movie, but basically it's like taking two different perspectives, 
one that we might, let's say, if we look at it from a certain viewpoint, we may go, oh, this is the good one and this is the bad one, which tends to be how people like orient to politics. It's like, okay, my side's the good one and the opposite side's the bad one, you know? And perhaps we could kind of look at the individual merits of like, okay, if we adopt this socially and political, what are the outcome, politically, what are the outcomes? If we adopt that socially and politically, what are the outcomes? And we can look at that and we can, we can make decisions on that political and social level. And we kind of say like, oh, I prefer this or I, or I prefer that or I think that this will lead to bad things or I think this will lead to good things. We can do that. But ultimately, on that, on the deeper level of like, let's say an integration of perspectives, what it has to do with is it has to do with like the archetypal concept of the sacred marriage, where we have two polarities, we add them together. And what happens is that sort of the divine child, the third thing comes from it, that's similar to different from and exalted from the two parent aspects coming together. And so what I see right now in this polarization is that it's almost like I kind of look at it a little bit like a nutcracker where it's like you have force and counterforce and it's sort of like the thing that cracks in the middle of it is sort of the thing that's going to come about later you know so it's like right now we're we're learning a lot through this polarization even though it's really uncomfortable it's like stuff is being sort of dredged up from the collective unconscious it's making us a lot more aware of things even though it's very uncomfortable and from there, I think we could have new perspectives emerge. Does that make sense? Yes. I have in my mind now, like, the, the, the lover's tarot card. Mm -hmm. uh, also probably the, the two of cups. But in any case, um, so this divine marriage, mm -hmm. there's a masculine and a feminine energy, you could say. In a, in a more universal sense than physical, interpersonal, whatever. Uh, but between the, the left and the right, um, you could say the left, I don't know, but you could hypothesize that the left is like a, maybe a more feminine energy and that the right is a more masculine energy. But when you've had the wounded masculine and maybe to some extent a wounded feminine, mm -hmm. um, when you've had that and all this ancestral uh, trauma and everything, like there's a lot of duality. As the healing transition to the new earth takes place, which of course is messy and goes in spirals, um, takes place, it becomes more and more possible for that divine union to take place. Mm -hmm. And of course, there is a child from that. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly it's very interestingly in this actual interview like you've got that like I'm a man right and I was more on the right right and I've got a little bit you know I've got all my experiences from that and the opposite is true of you and it's like a microcosm in a way mm -hmm. um, so I know I'm going somewhere with this, but I don't know where to take it. Like this, this energy is it's like going up the chakras or something, but there's different levels, lessons to learn, different levels as you go up. 
how does it change like what we deal with hmm yeah i guess like let's so if i'm thinking about like let's say certain changes that i think could cascade from essentially because basically what i'm they just in relation to the masculine and feminine i'd mentioned that the figure that showed up was quite androgynous you know so it's basically like a little bit like the star card in the tarot a little bit like so oh yeah yeah more feminine but then it had like a slight masculine thing and this was sort of like the higher self so it was like both my feminine and masculine sides together or something like that and from that standpoint it's sort of a paradigm shift more from polarization into an understanding and a loving kind of dynamic. So let's say right now we're working at this one level where things and people understandably are just thinking this is just how human beings are and they don't conceptualize of the possibility of the human species actually being able to evolve into a more loving state because we just kind of assume that okay if we are it's basically human beings are bad we have to find cages to put them in that makes them less bad and fundamentally that's something that right now in the current paradigm sort of left and right are sort of on the page uh, the same page with and it's just different ways that we put ourselves into cages that way as opposed to fundamentally shifting the the paradigm of the species and shifting our standpoint from a more polarized perspective into a more unconditionally loving perspective and it's understandable because if a person hasn't had let's say any kind of altered state of consciousness you know in that like unconditionally loving state it feels uh, it feels impossible and then of course even for somebody who has it feels like a very tall order to fill it's like how do we get a whole species to like happen that way so you know there's it's understandable why people are in this state but fundamentally the underlying thing is people have these like ir irreducibly selfish in bad ways and we have to find ways to sort of like create boundaries and barriers to make sure that people don't behave in those ways and so, and it makes sense because that's the current state of humanity as well. Like it's, we, or like most people are not capable of getting into a state of unconditional love. But so basically what happens is that you get kind of like a, oh, let's put this system in versus that system in. Right. So again, addressing things on the level of like, you know, politics. And so false. it's basically like, yeah. So it's basically like, oh, let's do capitalism because capitalism does this, or let's do socialism because socialism does that. Or maybe you can even have other things. Let's do communism because communism does that. And so ultimately what it is, is it's taking the system and focusing on the system as the root cause of the problems when the root cause of the problems is actually in the human spirit and because of all yeah. the cascading traumas through the human system and so to see the system as being the root cause of the problems is one of the problems of this paradigm because that's not where the root cause of the problems are the system is basically garbage in garbage out it's like you know no matter what system you chunk in there you know you're always going to get this fundamental human problem until there's a big you know paradigm shift relative to humanity which can be brought about through the healing of many generational trauma wounds yeah and the input is like people feeling unsafe mm -hmm. and i will add that there's like a trinary aspect to this the drama triangle right people you know you you feel unsafe so what are you going to do um you might just sit in shame and grief and just like i, I can't do anything about this i'm just i'm not going to deal with it i can't deal with it i'm just I'm too weak to handle this. I'll let other people 
do deal with things. I don't, I don't even have to do anything. I can just sit here, let other people deal with it because they're stronger than me. Mm. And I don't have what it takes. And that would be maybe um, more the, the victim mentality, right? Mm. And you might even be like, maybe I deserve this, right? The, the rescuer um, might be like, well, I'm going to help this person. I'm going to help someone else or I'm going to be, I'm a good person. It might be a more prideful thing or maybe just the idea that I'm really good and I, I don't need to look at my wounds because I can instead look at the world and how much I'm a good person by helping it. And this, of course, plays into politics. You know, anyone who's got an ideology, they'll be like, I'm helping. But even aside from politics, people play all these games to, to fit, to feel like they're helping or to feel like or to avoid feeling certain things, like to, to fit into one of these roles. And of course, there's the perpetrator, which is trying to keep control because they're afraid of feeling like a victim or they're afraid of how it feels otherwise. And they, these are just different ways to avoid that. But basically, these are all inputs, fear-based inputs. Um, and they're basically, yeah, like, because people don't feel safe. And so this is why I think grounding is really important because it's a foundation of actually feeling safe. And yes, there's more to it, of course, acceptance and love, but where do you think grounding fits into this picture? I think grounding in the sense of recognizing what's true. So again, one part of that insight was truth and unconditional love, to speak from them are the same thing. And so it's really being able to get in touch with the reality of the situation. So beyond any... <clears throat> beyond any interpretation or projection that the mind might put on things, it's kind of like taking those projections to the side and being able to view things just exactly as they are um, and to do so without judging it in one way or another. So one of the things that was coming up as you were saying this is I think a lot of people tend to behave this way to try to avoid feelings of shame or to try to feel like they're good and not bad. Or if they feel bad already, like bad in the, in the moral sense, it's like, oh, let me polarize over into goodness. So it's like this protection and, and solidification of the identity of goodness to get away from shame. And then ultimately, like, oh, darn it, I, I kind of like lost the thread of where I was going with the thing before. Darn it. Yeah, so, so basically with, let's say, the feeling of shame and trying to get away from shame, I think people have a tendency to behave in ways that are controlling or in ways where they're trying to help because ultimately both of those are ways to move away from the feeling of shame. And what shame is, is to project the archetype of good and evil or the archetype of good and bad or inferior, superior onto things and to fundamentally feel like we have to prove ourselves worthy to exist here. So again, it comes back down to that idea of human beings are fundamentally bad or that we are fundamentally bad and we have to do something to bring ourselves out of that state of badness and into goodness. And then you get a cascading effect of different coping mechanisms to avoid the badness and, and that sort of thing, which can come up in a variety of different ways. You can have two people behaving in opposing ways, let's say politically and otherwise, but both because they're trying to avoid shame in some kind of way. You know, so let's say, for example, there is a feeling of 
shame and like, okay, I'm worried that I'm a bad person, right? So let's say person A is worried that they're a bad person. Person B is worried that they're a bad person. One person could go about ignoring certain realities because it's something they're, they're trying to avoid that feeling of shame because they feel connected to the shame of that. Or on the other hand, you could have a person who's like, oh, let me help with these issues so that I can be the good one and therefore not feeling shame. So you could have two people behaving in opposite ways, really orienting to the same thing. And I'm hoping that I'm hoping that I hit the point that I was trying to hit at when I was mentioning this because it's it's all based around I think the feeling of shame and projecting those things and so oh groundedness that's where I was going so whenever we project that shame and that sense of good and bad good and evil and we dichotomize that way onto things what we do is we cut off our awareness from the reality of things and we say well this is just good and this is just bad or these people are just good and these people are just evil, you know? And so we have a tendency to look at things that way, which makes us very uncompassionate. And it leads to problems where we can view the person who is, let's say, doing something that we disagree with, or maybe we can even recognize a person's doing something that has outcomes that are negative. And we can go, oh, that's happening because that person is shameful and bad and wrong and evil, as opposed to recognizing the reality of where that perspective comes from. Even if we can recognize that it has, again, some cascading negative effects that we think, okay, we should put draw a line in the sand and not do that. So does that does that kind of answer your question? I have a feeling it's kind of all over the place. It largely does, but I feel there's a missing, missing ingredient. And that is one aspect of grounding is getting in touch with your body, feeling like physical sensations, maybe having an exercise routine, uh, being in touch with nature, going, experiencing nature, interacting with animals. And if you get stuck in, a lot of people get stuck into technology, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is an aspect of which people can be grounded and also getting the, your basic needs taken care of. Because if you don't take care of your basic needs, if you neglect yourself, as opposed to take care of yourself, then you might feel unsafe without, this is a factor. Now, obviously we're interacting with other people and as a society and the factors that you mentioned, of course, relevant. Um, I don't entirely, I'm not entirely sure how this fits together with the rest of the things we're saying. I, I do feel like it does though. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so grounding in, let's say a sense of getting in touch with the body, getting in touch with nature and, and this kind of thing. I think like it's sort of bringing together those two, like almost yin and yang polarities again. So one of the things is that we have a tendency as a society to be very yang oriented in the sense that we stay up here sort of more in the conceptual and the logical and like, you know, basically we're very focused on the abstract. And so whenever we get in touch with the body, what we're doing is we're also creating that sort of sacred marriage type of situation between the mind and the body, you know, and I know that even growing up, there was even an understanding that it was definitely like, a, oh, a mind is superior to the body. The body is basically just kind of going along with what the mind does. And, you know, maybe even conceptualizing that there was no link between really the happenings of the body, like, a, you know, let's say illnesses and that kind of thing and things that might be impacting us psychologically, emotionally and otherwise. And now what I notice is that there's more of a connection between those two things that are, you know, people are becoming aware of in society. And so I think that sacred marriage element is starting to happen between those two polarities. But yeah, I think it kind of relates, it tracks on pattern-wise that way. 
something I remember experiencing as, you know, as a man, you know, something in the masculine that's changed is, is this, um, this idea that certain things, and of course this happens in the feminine as well, probably, but this, the idea is that basically that certain things are nerdy and you're, you're, you're not worthy in a social setting at school or something. If you do something nerdy, geeky, other things are like, well, you know, it's sporty and I'm, I'm you know, decent's good. And then if you don't fit into maybe what's called at school in that sporty, you're like, if you're one of these people who doesn't fit into it, you might reject the physical because it's like, well, I'm not really succeeding in that regard, right? The brawn, brains and brawn, right? But if you're like, well, I don't like studies, but I know I can perform well in sports with the lads or something, then again, you might reject that or we have this dichotomy um, between mind and body, I suppose. Um, and this is changed to the point where you get people who are in shape you know like people in good shape like and they like i don't know play dozens and dragons or something right and you get this tendency and it's like that's totally fine yeah you, you can do that and like you can do this and they're not incompatible at all there was somewhere deeper i was going with this it's the connection between our bodies oh do you think that people escape into their mind to avoid trauma I, I thought i thought my idea i've come across this before mm -hmm. yeah for sure absolutely and it's something that i know is true of myself um so one of the things kind of like a long <laughs> sorry <clears throat> sick recently so I'm coughing a little bit but um like when one of the things growing up is that i was always quite good at like intellectual type of things, you know, so I never, I never struggled with those. I didn't have really any practice at home with like athletic type of stuff. I, I never had family members who were into sports or anything like that. And I remember like, you know, even like my parents were like, oh yeah, sports is not your thing. And so because I had this understanding, I think, and because I just didn't have the space to really practice it, I think I got pretty disconnected from my body in that sense. It's because I'm like, oh, I'm not good at the body stuff. I'm good at the mind stuff. And so I definitely think that that element could play a role as well, um, just in an individual level. Now, um, in, in the sense of like, let's say, uh, societally, let's say, because let's say things like things of the mind, once you get into adult life, it's like you can get better jobs usually. Like, you know, if like, let's say you're, you're sharper intellectually, whereas if you are good with the body, there are very few like, you know, let's say prestigious jobs around that, you know? So like to be, let's say a famous dancer or like, you know, a pro sports player or something like that would be the exception. And so I think like society by and large, because we tend to look at things through this more like, you know, like career-based, you know, sort of like, and that's like what we value. We might have a tendency to sort of value, let's say the intellectual range of things once like, let's say we get into our adult years more than we would the physical element of things. Whereas maybe perhaps even in like in school, it might sort of be the opposite way around. And yeah, so so that comes up there, but let's say, what was your, what was your question again? Because you know, I feel like I lost the thread again. You did actually answer it pretty well. And I've gone blank about my own question. Um, I've got another one though. So
Oh, I had to thread. I was going to thread it in, you see. Um, who would have thought podcasting is like knitting, you know? Uh, but uh, what were you saying again? <laughs> yeah, so, so what I was saying just for me personally, and I feel like there was another area I wanted to explore relative to your question, but I forgot. But basically for me personally, I kind of had uh, like a similar thing to what you had mentioned. So it's basically like, I didn't really have um, a lot of encouragement when it came to doing like physical things like sports. You know, I didn't really have anyone in my family who was into sports um, in any kind of way. Like I didn't like to watch sports or play sports. Um, and, you know, it was always really valued, you know, intellectual kind of things. And so I think just, I mean, maybe on the level of pure, like, let's say talent, you know, it's like I have more of a talent toward the intellectual than the physical anyway. But I feel like because of being taught that, like, oh, the body stuff, the athletic stuff, it's not that important, you know, it's sort of like my family had sort of a hierarchy of values where it put the body and put like sports and athletics and anything to do with that sort of toward the bottom of that. And then anything to do with like intellect and, you know, intelligence and maybe even creativity comes into play with that, that tended to be toward the top of that hierarchy of values, because those are the things that my parents sort of valued. And so I think early on, there was a disowning of the body. Oh no, I remember what it was. You asked me, is <laughs> you asked me, is trauma? Um, do people stay up in the mind because of that? And I got off on a tangent about one element of why I've avoided the body. Another element of why I've avoided the body is because the body, when you experience trauma, holds on to it if you don't process through it. And so one area that I have a lot of trauma and in my plant medicine experiences, it always brings me into this is like right here in the jaw, right here in the throat area, and then like toward the upper back and shoulders. And so I've had a lot of like physical issues all throughout my life that I didn't really, you know, I didn't really think that the, the origin point for them was an emotional origin, but I would have things like, you know, a lot of stiffness in the neck and in the upper back, you know, and, you know, I also used to have uh, like issues with my tonsils, getting sick quite a lot. And it's funny that I've just recently got over being sick after I've just had this ceremony. So it's like, it was, it was like, oh, okay, all this like upper respiratory throat kind of stuff. And it's exactly that area of the body that I always have these issues. Um, then there were also, you know, issues when I was little where I, I remember there was one summer I'd gone to like day camp and like every time I would like eat my lunch, I would just feel like I was going to vomit and like feel this really gaggy, constricting feeling in the throat. And there are a variety of other sort of physical things that came up like ear infections and all sorts of other things I used to get when I was little. And what, um, what plant medicine has helped me realize is that a lot of that is coming from an emotional origin because all of my anger, all of my fear, all of the emotions that I couldn't process by myself has kind of gotten stored in the body in those areas. Because basically, like if we kind of think of the body as having like the, the, you know, the nervous system, basically, where we have all these like branch like wires and they're sending like these electrical impulses between the brain and the body to communicate. Ultimately, when we experience emotions, we're experiencing them as these as sensations that come from these like electrical impulses that move between the nerves. And whenever we experience an emotion that's like too big to process, you know, ultimately we only have so much bandwidth to process through our emotions at a given time. You know, so if our system gets overloaded, what happens is that it'll just kind of hold on to those electrical impulses. It'll kind of store those in the body, make us go numb to them. And then sometimes what might happen is they might get triggered up because of this situation and that situation. 
But what it's done for me in particular, and this came through for me in the ayahuasca ceremony that I did back in 2020, is that I would basically be, my consciousness would run up into my head where I would stay kind of in my comfort zone. There would be this big bottleneck here, like a big block emotionally right here. And I would feel very disconnected from the rest of my body. And what I had experienced after that ceremony is that all of the stuff going on in my body, because it was quite, quite an intense ceremony that I'd gone through, all of my traumas were kind of unlocked and up at the surface. And so what was happening is that instead of being sort of up here in my mind, it was almost like my consciousness was trying to run away from my body. And reality felt really thin, like a, a soap bubble that could be popped at any moment. It felt really uncomfortable. I felt really ungrounded. And so what was happening is that as more of those emotions would come out and come to the surface of consciousness, it's like my consciousness would just be constantly running away from it. Because it's like this fear that exists right here. It's almost always running away from it. And so what I was having to do is I was having to focus toward this area of the body, just on the level of physical sensations, bringing my awareness here. And I was getting different visions and, and different memories from the past that would pop up, times that I had lied to myself and deceived myself to cope with certain situations. And so it was quite an interesting experience because it was like this emergency, like I have to get grounded right now. And I spent like so much time just going into the showers at the facility that I was at where basically I was just trying to get the, the water to run on my body so that I could be focused more in the body. But it's like my, my consciousness just did not want to be in my body. It was like trying to run away. And so, so it's definitely something that I've experienced that when we have a lot of trauma that's in the body that's unprocessed, we're going to try to sort of move our consciousness away from it. And for me in particular, it's this bottleneck effect where all the consciousness is right here and like a lot of it's not right here. Well, well, I think that pretty well answers my question and one I hadn't even asked. So that's great. Um, do you think this relates to, this is upward pressure in terms of, or tendency with the frequency collectively and different sort of, well, the Hawkins scale, I have, for example, reason, when you think of Einstein, the 20th century, you got Einstein, people like that. It's all about the height, the highest height seem to be largely at reason, you could say. Or oh, that's where, you know, that's, anyway, that's like the height of it. Well, there are people getting beyond that, but you know what I mean. And there's also the information age. We're now coming into transition to the age of Aquarius. It's more about information, right? And all of that. And so it, with this tendency, perhaps this escaping into the mind, like what you've experienced, might be kind of one of the energies or related there, um, this tendency. Mm -hmm. Hang on, can you repeat so, the very last thing you said? The, Okay, essentially that this tendency as society is dealing with these different energies, traumatic ancestral energies going up in frequency, reason, and um, I don't know where this would be in the spiral dynamics, maybe orange. Orange, probably. Maybe yellow in certain respects. Yes. Systems thinking, but also like where... Yeah, where reason is the way you solve problems. 
and you have rational evidence-based solutions to things and you think it all through and that's in the vogue you know that's popular like you you're smart you're rational you you're not one of those irrational religious people you know <laughs> you, you you work it out and you base on the evidence and that that's that's what the priests of the age say is like worthy you know the scientists well not you know or maybe the media you know it's all about the mind right and and when you get our brightest minds stuck in their head and their trauma not even knowing it and ungrounded because and focusing on all this technology and not going outside uh enough or maybe not being touched with their bodies i'm, I'm generalizing this it's no wonder and, and all this with this all this energy coming down and this transition we're in it's messy right mm -hmm. and i think you you've probably experienced that firsthand i mean Absolutely. Yeah. So, so basically like, um, when it comes to this, I think of the concept of the pre-trans fallacy, you know, so basically what we have is we have like the first stage, which let's say that it's kind of like magical thinking, right? So, so it's kind of like, <coughs> it's something where we don't necessarily base things on observation, you know, and it's very fantastical and it's not like, like not as to say that, let's say, things with elements of magical thinking can't be valuable because I think ultimately there's a lot there that can be gleaned. Like, let's say if we look archetypally at like, let's say certain myths or, you know, certain ideas about how things work from a pre-scientific standpoint, there's a lot of gems to be mined there. But let's say if we look at the negative elements of like magical thinking, you know, so being in a state of ignorance and kind of like almost just filling in the blanks with what what's going to make sense to us in, in a very, uh, you know, human-centric way as opposed to the way that things are objectively going, then what happens is that you move from a state societally and individually into a state of, like, scientific rationalism. And I also associate that with stage orange in spiral dynamics, is that basically we go from this state of we believe it because these are just the stories that we believe in to, oh, can I observe it? Can it be repeated? you know, uh, basically, is it a phenomenon that happens and can we see exactly how it's going, you know? And so it basically is um, one of the problems with that is that it can get very stuck in the materialist paradigm. And basically any question that can't be observed directly sort of gets kind of left to the side. So that's one issue there, but it can create a kind of, um, a kind of sense of let's throw out everything that was before that. Let's throw out everything intuitive. Let's throw out everything emotional let's just focus toward what's rational. Let's focus just toward what we can observe and what the mind can make good logical sense out of. And so what it does is it sort of pairs down even our ability to think past and to kind of have more flexibility with the mind. And we also sort of lose connection to our intuition and our bodies, you know? So it's sort of like, oh, emotions, those aren't important. Let's toss those out. Or, oh, like, you know, we get these gut feelings, you know, and that's a huge way that we make decisions. In fact, all decisions, we can link them back down to what's going on with our emotions, what emotional states we want to go toward, what emotional states we want to go away from. And so what we do is we end up starting to conceptualize ourselves only in the ideal as rational beings, right? So a person who starts to identify with being a rational person 
might go, oh, I only make my decisions based off of logic. And I always weigh out the pros and cons and I make the most logical decision because they might even be in resistance to using any other form of knowing to make their decisions. But ultimately underneath, even the desire to be logical and rational is coming from an emotional root. It's like, why would I want to be rational? It's like, okay, I want to be the type of person that's in the know. And maybe that makes me feel good about myself because I can feel like an expert and I can feel valuable that way. And so there can be deeply emotional roots to wanting to only be rational. And so what happens is a person can kind of get stuck in this very narrow perspective where they view only rationality as being a good way to make decisions and they miss the more emotional elements of themselves. So they get kind of they kind of cut themselves off at the neck and they go like, oh, only things that are going on up here are important. And those emotions, those are things that I should really just learn to overcome and to transcend, you know? And then the, basically the other side of the pre-trans fallacy is the incorporation of things that are not necessarily rational, not necessarily irrational, but more irrational. You know, it's sort of like re-embracing the mystery, re-embracing the body, re-embracing the intuition and these kinds of things. Yeah, and that's a kind of potential unison of opposites. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, um, sorry? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of that. So basically what we have is we have kind of like we have the, the, the first stage um, and then we have the second stage. Those two things marry together and create the third, you know? So, and it's sort of the same thing of like, let's take this out of this context. Let's say that we have something like, um, times before sanitation really existed, you know, before complex sanitation existed. What we had is we had a lot of problems, you know, like where we didn't have medicines to treat certain diseases. We didn't have like soaps to be able to sterilize things. And we had a lot of people dying and getting sick and all sorts of things that came from not being able to treat these diseases. And then you have the second stage, which is like, okay, you know, we have basically pasteurization, we have sterilization, we have all sorts of medicines that we can create. And ultimately, it's a big step forward from what was before. But then we go to the third stage. And that's basically where we realize, oh, wait a second, there's good bacteria. And we have the gut microbiome. And we have to consider these things because we don't want to deplete our good bacteria. And we want to like, you know, be eating fermented foods and things like that for our health, because ultimately, if we live in an over sanitized world, what then happens is that, you know, you don't get that same diversity of the gut microbiome with the gut microbiome be considered the, uh, the other brain. We maybe deal with certain even emotional issues because certain things, I think like serotonin, I think you, it requires a certain kind of gut microbiome activity to actually be able to unlock serotonin. And so we could deal with some like issues with depression and that kind of thing. And so basically we have sort of this type of dynamic where we start off, let's say, with the more, let's say, the old ways that we would do things before the scientific, you know, sort of paradigm, then we have sort of the scientific paradigm being included. And then it's sort of like getting back into and seeing the science within the previous thing and reincorporating it and, you know, all that. So, so basically, we have kind of this like, two original parent things coming together, creating a, 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 a let's say something that's similar to different than and exalted from the original two parent aspects. Yeah, a synthesis, uh, I suppose. Interestingly, 
when people are stuck in their heads, like they often, we often have in this age, um, let's say, to come back to politics and let's say there are people debating, right? And they're, they're all like, I'm using logic. And both are like into the idea that they are logical and rational and while repressing their own emotions. Uh, so what will happen is, you know, for example, on one hand, you, you could say, take Ben Shapiro, right? You know, facts don't, you know, it was it. Facts don't care about your feelings sort of thing, right? I'm just uh, debate, not in a rebutting or like um, destroying libs or whatever, like using logic to just disprove everything and like, ah, got them. And then there's the other side of like those irrational right-wing religious people are just nutty. and They actually think tradition makes sense. Like there's no evidence for tradition at all, right? Idiots. Uh, I'm, obviously I'm stereotyping both sides. Uh, there's much more to it than that. But from actually any political perspective, you can basically get someone who's smart, who's thinking things through, They've got their viewpoint that emotions subconsciously make them inclined towards and they're attached to, and they're projecting onto the other person. And all that repressed stuff is basically playing into the dynamic of people arguing with each other collectively, triggering each other, like again and again. Absolutely. But at least that means we've got plenty of opportunities to learn, so. <laughs> For sure. And and I suppose one thing that I would say, because oftentimes it's like you're being irrational. No, you're being irrational. And ultimately, the roots of the reason why human beings do everything that they do are fundamentally, maybe rationality comes into it, but the roots are, are non-rational. The roots are always kind of like in this emotional space. And so I would almost say that people would get a bit further with their discovery if they said, no, I'm actually like, I'm being very emotional right now. It's like, it's not like necessarily a bad reason to feel a certain way about something, you know? So for example, if like, let's say I take somebody, uh, and again, I don't know if this is Ben Shapiro's motivation, but like, let's say, for example, um, let's say with his paradigm, you know, so think about him as some somebody who's kind of religious, you know, so who has a lot of traditionalist like viewpoints. And, you know, perhaps from his viewpoint, he wants everybody to be like kind of almost like united, thinking similar thoughts and everything so that, you know, there isn't like this turmoil between people. Maybe there's something underneath that, you know, he wants everybody to be kind of like on the same page as him or something like that. Wants everybody to if he believes that, you know, the, the way his paradigm is absolutely right, it's like, okay, I want to correct people and I want to bring them back into what's right so we can be on the same page. You know, maybe there's even a latent underlying desire for connection there or something like that. And I think a lot of people tend to, let's say, want people to sort of buy into their viewpoints for that reason. Because it's like, oh, no, you're way over here on this page and I can't connect to you if you're over on that page. You know, so ultimately if let's say somebody like a Ben Shapiro really dug deeply into why it is that he's trying to get things to run the way that he's running them, he would probably find a lot of emotional reasons why. And the thing is, is those emotional reasons 
wouldn't invalidate the reason why he's believing those things. It's just that there's an understanding that, oh, if I'm not being 100% logical, or if somebody's not being 100% logical with their decision-making process, then that somehow invalidates their feelings or that somehow invalidates their viewpoints. And so it's sort of like, it, if you just went ahead and said, you know what, like emotions are motivating my political viewpoints. In fact, emotions motivate everyone's political viewpoints and emotions motivate every decision that a human being makes. What we can do is we can then look and we can get the reality. Again, going back to grounding, it's like, what's the reality of why a person believes the things that they believe and the way that, and what is it that makes them behave a certain way in relation to those beliefs? Yeah, I'll point out, I don't mean this as any way to bash it. Mm -hmm. I'm actually, Personally, I think that he's probably actually, he does seem to be more, honestly, in my opinion, more moderate than people think um, in certain ways, just because, I mean, I used to like watching his videos. Now I, I don't really pay attention to him either way. But there's definitely more polarized figures. It, you might not, it might not seem that way, but... Um, yeah, I don't think he's like full on like Bible basher or anything. Like. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't. Think and, so. In any case, like, um, I think what maybe we can, hmm, tie it together and come to a close soon. So, like, what what do you think? Like the core theme or like a core thread, key threads to like bring it together would be. <laughs> I don't know what I'm asking, but yeah. So I, I suppose. <clears throat> One thing is um, just, I guess, in terms of, let's say, societal evolution and the evolution of viewpoints and ideologies in society is that, like, we talked a lot about, uh, let's say, the two polarities coming together and creating something else. So sort of that sacred marriage, divine child, and that that divine child is ultimately very different from both of the parent aspects, but has some similarities to it. So that's one thing. I think also it's getting to the real truthful root of why people believe the things that they believe, why they behave the ways that they behave. And it's not as to say, like, from my perspective, that that evens out anything on the actual symptom level. We could say that, okay, if people are doing this behavior, it's going to lead to these outcomes. Or if people are doing that behavior, it's going to lead to these outcomes. Maybe these outcomes lead to more health and harmony. Maybe these lead to less health and less harmony. And we can have disagreements about that, like on the political level about, you know, what the, what the cascading effects of the symptoms are. Right? So if we look at politics as symptoms or the social uh, beliefs, social dynamic beliefs as symptoms, we can ultimately draw those down to those deeper roots. And part of those roots is the emotional motivation behind why we believe what we believe. And I guess it sort of started with your question about things that had changed for me and how that recognition that to speak from truth and to speak from unconditional love are the same thing. And so it's sort of like looking at it, being able to look at people's viewpoints that I may even disagree with vehemently, or maybe that you might disagree with vehemently, but to recognize that those, those beliefs, you know, like, let's say, whether it's like we disagree with them, or maybe even we see some kind of harm that could cascade there, and maybe there's, there could even be a, a factual element to the harm that the viewpoint could cause, potentially. We can look and we can see that it's not coming from a fundamentally like wicked place. It's not, it's coming from a kind of uh, loving, innocent place because that's what's sort of underneath. Like that's 
underneath all of the layers of trauma and all the layers of coping and all of the different cascading effects of the effects of our individual lives and our generational traumas. Ultimately, underneath that, there's a desire for unconditional love, connection, kinship between all human beings, and that we can look at politics as symptoms. But if we get down underneath that, we can maybe help to shift humanity into a direction of unconditional love, where we have more connection. And therefore, it's not like we're trying to fix things on the level of the symptoms or fix things on the level of politics or fix things on the level of the system. It's more like getting down to the root of what keeps human beings out of the state of unconditional love and connection and concern for the other. That like, you know, if we're able to have some kind of leverage over that and to help people really see where other people are coming from so that they can practice unconditional love, so they can practice understanding, that will really create maybe some of that shift that can lead to cascading positive effects down the line. Yeah. Um, I can't disagree with you there at all. Uh, well said. Thank you. Something I would tie into this is that, of course, the reality we experience on a 3D level is a hologram. Mm -hmm. And the true reality is within, we are all one right and we just don't necessarily we're not necessarily aware of it uh collectively and you can't i think uh, david hawkins was actually saying this um he's behind the hawkins scale he's quite he did some quite good research about um or, or kind of scientific research almost about spirituality it's really interesting so What was I saying by David Hawkins? Yes, he was saying that you can't, you need to, you, you can't really fix a problem in the world of um, results, right? Mm -hmm. That the true causation isn't a linear set of A causes B causes C causes D. It's actually like there's a seed with the whole sequence, like a little story. Mm -hmm. And that story is like attracted by an energy by energy fields of different emotional frequencies into playing out on the hologram based on the internal energies. And so it's attracted and then it it plays out. And then there's different almost archetypal stories, but which one you get happens and then based on that it plays out according to a sequence even though time isn't really there and if you just try to fix the hologram keep trying to change the hologram so it's right then of course that doesn't change anything because you need to resolve the solution is in the human heart mm -hmm. so absolutely yeah. Like, yeah, it's sort of like you have the tree and maybe the tree it was like represents the problem. And it's sort of like, oh, I'm going to start pinpointing. Oh, that's a leaf. That's a leaf. That's a leaf. That's a leaf. And pick the, pick the leaves off, pick the leaves off. And it's like, we don't really fundamentally do um, anything to it <coughs> on that level. It's a little bit like Hercules trying to cut off the head of the hydra only to have three more grow in its place. You know, it's sort of like when we deal with things on the level of symptoms, it's like, even though the symptoms are the thing we look at and go, whoa, that symptom is so harmful. Again, it's the head of a hydra, right? It's like, we don't want to get bitten by the head of the hydra. And on some level, we do have to deal with the heads of the hydra. But if we think that just 
cutting off the head of the hydra is going to fix the problem, then ultimately we're going to end up with is more, more and more of the same problem because we're not dealing with the issue at the really the deepest roots. We're dealing it on the level of dealing with it on the level of symptoms. It'd be like if we have a sickness and then we try to, you know, suppress the fever. It's like it might seem like things get better, but it just pushes the symptom under the surface only to have it spring back up in a much worse form, festered and you know, all of that. So it's sort of like you push it down into the shadow and it comes back up as a, as a much more intimidating monster. And so I think this tends to be the, the problem politically that people are dealing with fundamentally because what they're, they're kind of stuck in this symptom level because it's sort of like, oh, left versus right, you know, the political arguments that are coming up. And on some level that has to be engaged with. We can't completely abdicate what's going on there. But I think it's sort of this idea on both sides that the solutions are going to come at that level. And ultimately, if we expect for, uh, let's say, uh, solutions to come at the level of the symptoms or for major, you know, revolutionary changes to come at the level of the symptoms, ultimately we'll either be disappointed or potentially could lead to quite harmful outcomes. And so it's sort of like, can we actually address the root cause? And there's also sort of a misdiagnosis of root causes happening as well. So for example, like it's like to think about, oh, the system is the root cause of the problem. So maybe it's something like capitalism or, or patriarchy, or maybe it's socialism or, you know, like just we could throw out any kind of system, right? But ultimately those systems are an outgrowth of humanity. And fundamentally it's like the root is actually in the human heart. It's like, that's where the, the issue lies. And so I think it's dealing with it at too shallow of a level, dealing with it to, at too much of a symptomatic level to actually create a large cascading change that ultimately, I think everybody would at that point sort of be on board for because it's sort of like, can we actually bring things into more of a state of unconditional love where we can, you know, sort of relate to the other in such a way that we can empathize deeply with their perspectives and to understand where those perspectives are coming from, as opposed to saying, oh, that perspective is coming up because that person's stupid or that perspective is coming up because that person's evil and bad and wrong, you know, like, you know, so it's sort of like, it's taking that too simplified version of things that tends to happen here on the symptom level and really going down and really seeing the nuances and the complexities of why people are doing the things that they're doing and even if we recognize that the symptom might, might objectively lead out to negative consequences, we don't have to then say, oh, that person's bad. What we can do is we can say, okay, we can draw a line in the sand and we could say, okay, we shouldn't do this politically, socially, otherwise, but then we can go, okay, well, what is it that's creating? What is it that's creating that issue? You know, so if we find that there's like an uprising of authoritarianism or something like that. And so like, let's say, okay, I can recognize that if I look at the group of people who are being authoritarian and i could say okay well clearly authoritarianism is going to lead to a cascading like laundry list of problems socially if we green light that right so we don't have to enable that kind of thing we could say nope we're drawing lines in the sand we're not going to allow this type of thing to happen right so we could do that but then if we look at the people who are kind of on board for the authoritarianism right? Or we look at the political figures, even that are behind the authoritarianism, we can look and we can go, what is it that leads a human being into resonating with that? 
You know, what is it that makes a human being susceptible to authoritarian ways of thinking? You know, and we can start to like look and see, oh, hang on a second, maybe it was this thing that came up in childhood or this type of dynamic that's coming up in society or that type of thing. And we can go and we can address that at the root cause. And we can also go like, okay, well, if these are the problems that tend to lead out to that, how do we prevent those things happening before this dynamic starts to arise? And we can also look at what are cer certain emotional things, you know? So for example, maybe it's loneliness, you know? So people get on board for some kind of authoritarian cause because it's like, oh, I feel like I'm doing something with a group of people and we're all connecting together because I felt lonely otherwise, you know? So it could be something something that's totally unrelated to the, the expression that it's taking over here, you know? So, so yeah, it's sort of like looking and having genuine compassion and unconditional love for people who even end up in, let's say, doing things that might lead to harmful situations so that we can, instead of saying, oh, those are just the evil people and we just got to get rid of the evil people, you know, which of course leads to just more, yeah. more problems and more authoritarianism. And like, it tends to like sort of become a viral mess at that point in time. Instead, it's like, oh, wait a second. These are fundamentally good, decent people that are fundamentally at that same core, one with me where they also have this deeply loving nature underneath all of these different layers of traumas and things like that. And being able to, you know, to, for, for the benefit of them and for the benefit of society, to be able to essentially look at that issue, see it for what it is and potentially like have different solutions that come in, not in the form of like force, in the form of like real genuine love and connection and all the things that human beings need in order to, you know, basically be in be in a state of connection with one another where we're not like, you know, where we don't cause a lot of issues because we feel disconnected from the rest of the human system. Yeah, so I think that more or less summarizes what we've been talking about. So I don't really have much to add. Um, well, I have to say I've had a really nice conversation with you. Awesome, and yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure anyone who's still listening um, had a great time. So, so yeah, maybe I could, um, I probably would want to interview again because uh, sure. it's enjoyable. So, um, yeah, without further ado, have a great day and uh, bye for now.